This Christmas, um, I've been talking to you about this new German word that sits at the heart of the Christmas series because it actually sits at the heart of both our cultural and our Christian Christmas celebrations. So much of, of what's grown up around the Christmas season has very little to do with the biblical accounts about the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, right? Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not a Scrooge. I like a lot of it. From Christmas vacation to Elf on a Shelf, I'm all in. Big Santa guy, right? Um, but let me be honest about, um, about the month of December. And look, at this point, it's not the month of December anymore, right? It's like all fall and into December. Most of what's going on uh, surrounding the birth of Jesus of Nazareth is commercial and cultural. It's not necessarily historical or biblical. And that's one of the reasons that this word that I've been talking about over these weeks is so unique, because it bridges, I would say, one of the most celebrated cultural concepts, right, of Christmas, one of the most deeply, and one of the most deeply embedded biblical truths. The word, if you've been with us over the last two weeks, and week after week, somebody corrects me on the pronunciation, I actually had a young German guy last week tell me how to get it right, and I'm sure I'll get it wrong again this week, but the word is... Zinzut. Zinzut. That's my best attempt at it this week. You're all welcome to correct me in the hallway. There is no English translation of the word because it is a sense. It's a sense. You can't really, there's not an English word for it, but, but the Germans would say it is a sense of deep, inconsolable longing or yearning, the, the feeling of intensely missing something, but you don't really know what it is. One definition I came across this week is that, or uh, two weeks ago when I first introduced it to you, is that Zinsuk is, is a disorienting longing for something. Now, at Christmas time, that longing, that emotion, it gets closest to the biblical truth of our shared human condition as possible. At Christmas time, and this is, I mean, you just saw it with Sprucey, right? You heard the music behind Sprucey was singing about it. Uh, every song, every movie, every TV special, every commercial, every card, everybody wants to be, everybody longs to be home for Christmas. And that longing for home, the universal itch that everybody's somehow trying to scratch, this zine zooked for home, it is, other than Jesus Christ, I believe it is, it is the, the second greatest um, theme of the arc of the biblical narrative. Man finds himself, from the very first pages of Scripture, by chapter 3 of book 1, man finds himself in exile from home, a home that was created for him and he was created for, a home that all of us in some sense long for, and in the pursuit of this home, we often settle for, for very cheap substitutes, imitations, which never really satisfy the longing, right? We are what the Bible calls sojourners, people without a home, on the move, on the road, who way too often try to settle down to build houses where we've planted ourselves. We try to satisfy that, that ache with, with all kinds of things, achievements, successes, even, even others, relationships. But even the best of people, they never can satisfy. They were not created to satisfy this zinzuk issue that all of us share. Now, this is week three, right? Week, week one, I introduce you to that longing, some of the social science that, that goes behind it. And, and I went, if you were here on my own little personal journey, trying to find home. I went to my house. I showed you the house I grew up in, in my neighborhood. And I showed you where my grandmother's house used to be because that was, 
that was really home for me. That's where I, I felt most in control and most loved and most secure. And, and if you were here, you know it's now a strip mall. Not there anymore. And my point was that they're all gone. The lesson, right, is that home is not a place. It can't be because places go away. We had the gingerbread event the other night. It was really fun to watch the kids. These were hard gingerbread houses. They didn't stay, to get, stay together very easily, right? And so we uh, asked the parents afterwards, the day after, to use this as a way to talk to the kids about being home for Christmas, right? That our home, I, I asked the parents to ask their kids, well, where's that home you built last night? And it was one of two answers. It's either in a million pieces or it's in the garbage, right? And the concept was, just for little children to understand, right? Psalm 90, verse 1, in an experience. Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. Home is a person, right? It's a certain person. It's not a place. It's Jesus, who's come to be our home and to be the way home. Last week, I introduced you to the way home. It is forgiveness. The scriptures are, are, are so clear about this that sin separates us from one another, from our creation, from God. In fact, in the creation story, you'll see this in a minute, it's actually responsible from, for separating us from where we were meant to be, what we were created for. Now, if you're new to the church, I know the word sin carries a lot of religious baggage with it, but it's just this simple concept of missing the mark that's been laid out by God for us. And so as we do that, we separate from one another, from God. Forgiveness reconciles. It bridges the gap. It welcomes people home. Last week, we looked at that concept in the story, uh, a story of homecoming, more popularly known as the story of the prodigal son, where you ultimately see Jesus as the true and better elder brother in the story who's come to us. He hasn't stayed home, but he's come to us at a great personal cost to bring us, to forgive us, and bring us home. And we're going to wrap all this up on Christmas Eve, but I want to share a final concept with you regarding our lives as sojourners, because we all have this longing for home. Week one, what, or specifically who is our home? Week two, how do we get home? Week three, where is home? Where, where are we going anyway, and why does it matter so much? When our kids were younger... One of my favorite things to do, we were only able to pull it off a couple times. If you've got young kids, I uh, encourage you to do this. My son-in-law, Ryan, is here. I was thinking about Landry this morning with this. A couple times during the summer, we would wake them up randomly. They didn't know it was coming. We'd tell them that we were going to go on a trip somewhere. Fun. That we packed all they would need. They just had to get up and brush their teeth real quick to change and get in the car because it was going to be awesome. And so we get them all moving, get them into the car, and, and we'd head off. Now, usually, obviously, Joan and I knew where we were going, but we didn't let the kids know about it. It was usually, you know, a, a theme park of some kind. I was trying to remember where these places were that we did this with. I think one was Sesame Place when they were young. Another was Dorney Park, right? And at that point, they were getting a little smart, so they were starting to, like, check the road signs. Pennsylvania, huh? Um, and another time, I think we went down the shore to the boardwalk. On the way, though, we would just talk up how much fun we were going to have when we got there, how awesome it was going to be. And it was fun because the kids would begin to ask question after question after question about where we're going. They wanted to know more about where they were going. They had a ton of fun looking out the window. They were trying to pick up signs, right, trying to figure it out. Now, the trip was not what they were looking forward to. But what they were looking forward to made the trip part of the experience and fun. 
Now, back in those days, I know today it would be a different story. Today, you'd have to run around the house and pick, find their devices to keep them occupied in the car, right? In the, in the 90s, there were no devices to keep them occupied in the car, right? And so what made this trip so memorable, right, was that because of the joy set before them on this trip, there was no fighting on these trips. There was no complaining or crying. I mean, they would ask the ever-present kid question, right? Uh, but, but not in a whiny way. How long till we get there? Not because they were stuck in the car, but because they couldn't wait to the moment that they got there. They couldn't wait expectantly, too excited about what was coming. They, and they knew, they, knew, they, they knew Joan and I would never lie to them about how, I mean, I wouldn't wake them up and say, get in the car and then drive them, this is going to be an awesome day, and then take them all to the dentist, right? <laughs> they didn't worry like, oh man, he could really be putting us on. No, he, they trusted the driver, right? They didn't have a lot of opportunity not to. I mean, after all, dad was driving the car. But they trusted the driver, and as a result, because of their trust, it made the ride something they could endure and enjoy. I didn't realize it at the time. I thought about it this week as I was thinking about how to wrap the series up. What we were doing, what we were teaching our children was how to be sojourners, right? How to be people on a journey, people that were away from home, going somewhere they weren't totally certain of, but they knew enough about it that it brought them, the concept of it brought them great joy. We were. Again, it was accidental. I'd like to tell you, you know, I'm, I'm this biblical guy, and I came up with this idea to teach them about how to be sojourners in a world, but I didn't. I just wanted them to have fun. It was purely accidental. But we were teaching them how not to only endure, but to enjoy sometimes what could, could seem like a torturous trip, because Dad wasn't going to stop to let them go to the bathroom, Right? But they were able to endure and enjoy. Why? They looked for signs along the way because of the joy that was set out before them. They didn't totally understand where it was they were going, but they trusted their father. And so, kids, right, fellow sojourners, with a longing for someplace better, this is a serious question. Do you know where you're going? Could you describe it? It's funny, right? At some level you do. You know you're, you're where you're going. I mean, think about it. If you've been to a funeral, and, and I'm sure all of you have, right? Does anybody at a funeral ever get up and go, well, you know, I'm sure he's gone on to a worse place. You might be thinking that, right? But nobody ever says that. Why? Why does everybody from almost every culture and faith system have this concept that what happens is that we go to a better place? A better place. These three universally kind of shared words of hope. Because everybody feels this zinzuk concept, right? That this is actually not the place. This isn't it. There's got to be a better one. We all know it. We long for it. It's something internal, right? Perhaps if we understood it better, it might impact how we live. It might impact how we endure. And it might impact how we enjoy. And so where are we going? Well, our good and gracious father who's driving the car, has, and we're going to have to decide if we trust him enough to believe his promises of where we're going, he has not laid it out completely, nor did I for my kids. I mean, think about it, right? 
what fun would it be for his children if he had laid it out completely? But he's put some pretty cool, pretty cool clues in the scripture. And if the entirety of the scriptural canon can be summarized as a man in exile longing to be home, well, then he has laid out in that canon, again, books and prophecies, letters, historical treatises, written by 40 or so men across 1,500 years, various cultures. If you actually stop and think about what I'm about to share with you, where you're going, it's breathtakingly exciting. I mean, Sesame Place does not hold a candle to what, what is going on here. We started this series with me sharing uh, with you that we were a people that were created for a home. So I, I want to take a look at the home that was lost so long ago, what and where we were and created for, what we were created for. Genesis, the uh, first book in the scriptures, right? Written, it's a book of origins, that's what Genesis means. It was written about 1400 B.C., so about 3,400 years ago. The writer, traditionally thought to be Moses, here's what he writes. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. Even before he made man, he had created a home for man. The Lord God had some, how important a home is. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The, the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and, and good for food. I, I just love that line. You just have to stop. It just captures your good and gracious father so perfectly. Of course he made trees uh, for us but, because he loves us, but he made trees that provide for us physically because that's what he does, but he also made trees that were just there to be beautiful, just to be there to be pleasing to your eye. That's why on those summer nights we've talked about, when the sunset is just perfect, you get this sense of joy and wonder and beauty, but it's so fleeting and it goes away and the zinzukt returns. Going on, the writer says that in the middle of this wonderful place, and in the middle of the garden, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in this garden, there was a river. It was watering the garden, and it flowed from Eden. From there, it separated into four headwaters. And so now step back, right? You got to get the picture in your mind of this, right? Home for us is to be this place of both provision and beauty with water and rivers and trees and all of this is happening because it's God's will and God's pleasure. It's God's desire. It says that God made all kinds of trees grow. We didn't. His effort, not ours. Genesis goes on describing what this is like. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. Home for us. There were not hundreds of rules in, in the garden. There are not hundreds. If you live in a good home, there's not a lot of rules. Heck, there weren't even ten commandments, right? The home we were made for had one. Choose, because we're creatures with free will, choose to let God be God and determine for you good and evil, right and wrong. That was the only rule. The Lord God said, it, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make for him a suitable helper. It's not good for man to be alone. Think about this in our creation, the way we're created. You know this. 
You, ever, you know, I was thinking about those sunsets, those moments where you go, man, it's just right. There's, look at the beauty of it. What's the first thing you do when you see, you ever see on that summer night, the amazing, you know, cotton candy? It looks like the author of all creation is pulling apart cotton candy in the sky. What's the first thing you do? You yell for somebody to come see it with you. Every sunset I've ever seen that's been amazing. Joan and I have this thing, we're always yelling into each other. You got to get out here and see this. It's unbelievable. You know it, it's deep down in your souls. You were created to be in community, right? You were created to be in community by the one who is in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because you were created in his image. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all of the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. Super interesting detail. Please don't miss this detail because it comes up all through the entirety of Scripture. The Scripture says that whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Now, this is the key to understanding what's happening here at home. You would have to assume, right, that God, stick with me, is God not perfectly capable of naming all of the animals on his own? Right? I mean, he's a fairly creative God. Think of all that he's made so far. Why would God say, you know what, wouldn't he say, I'll just take it from here and finish up? But instead, right, God says, I want you to name them, and whatever you call them is what they'll be called. We come up with stupid names. I was reading this week, it's funny to Google, stupid animal names, right? You've got the screaming hairy armadillo, the Pacific spiny lump sucker, I mean, God could have done better, right? But he chose not to. I saw one guy talking about this, and he said, you know, at, at some point, it was late in the day, man just got tired and looked and was like, dog. And God's like, well, wait, that's my name spelled backwards. But for some reason, God, God chooses to let man participate in his work, to, in a sense, honor, with, honor man in this way, gladly and willing to partner with him, even though it's not necessary or needed, to work with him. And why? To cultivate and care for his creation. Do you see that? That's what home was like. This is why, you know, if, 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 you, don't, if you just sit home after a while, it doesn't feel right, right? You sit there and you're like, I wasn't created to just sit here. God has this interesting habit. You see it right from the beginning of, uh, of, of handing off to man really important work, really important. I mean, that he could do better and giving it to humans. In fact, as I thought about that this week, right, jump ahead for a quick second. It makes Jesus' final words a bit more relatable and understandable. Now you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I am with you surely to the very end of the age. It's like God is saying, I know I could do it, but I want you to do it with me. I'll be with you, but let's do it together. Back to that in a few minutes. So, so now we have this place, this home we were created for, this garden, right? It's got beautiful rivers and trees, a tree of life, wonderfully and meaningful work for Adam. And then it gets even better. God creates Eve, this suitable helper, which in the English translation of the Hebrew word, it meant that Eve was somebody whose strengths and weaknesses were exactly corresponding counterparts of Adam's. Where Adam was strong, Eve was weak. Where Eve was strong, Adam was weak. 
They were made for each other. And then check this out, right? The great line, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And this verse is not so much a description of their physical nature as it is their physical, or excuse me, their spiritual union. Adam and Eve stood before one another. They were open books, no individual agendas, no judging, no posing, no hiding. They knew one another completely and fully and loved one another in the same fashion, completely and fully. And so there's this sense in the garden that everything is just right. Some of you have heard of the, the Jewish word shalom, right? That word simply means harmony and wholeness and completeness. That was the garden. It was all working together for good, and it was all, as God said, so very, very good. So home, right? You've got this, this beautiful garden, right? Sustained by God for our good, providing both for our physical, emotional, spiritual needs. It wasn't just utilitarian. It was created for pleasure and enjoyment. There, there was meaningful, important work there, a partnership between man and God. Relationships were all right. No jealousy, no duplicity, no anger, no war. There were rivers and trees, and right at the center of it, don't miss this now, right at the center of it, there was this one tree, the tree of life. And so for today, heck, you know, there's a lot of stuff attached to Christmas trees, right? Today, maybe for the rest of the Christmas season, I want you to, to reimagine one of our most prolific Christmas symbols, right? We'll start with this one on the left. At the center of our home, just like right now at the center of many of our homes, stands a tree. In the center of our, our, our first home, the, the center of this incredibly place is a tree of life. Now, some of you know what happens, right? Man chooses to eat of the other tree to, to taste the fruit of what being his own God is like. One command, we couldn't keep it, didn't trust our good and faithful God to, be, to make the right cause of right and wrong, good and evil. And as a result, and mercifully, I would argue, man is taken from his home and placed outside of the Garden of Eden, cut off from the tree of life, which is that, that which sustained life, from which man drew his life. In fact, the scriptures are really, it's super interesting. I don't know if you know the story. Not only are we taken out of that place, are we pulled away from home, we are kept from home. Genesis 3 ends this way. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so our exile began. Now, here is where things get really cool in this story really fast. I want you to fast forward 1,500 years in the, in the biblical writing, right? It's about the year 96 AD. John, one of Jesus' disciples, is a very old man. He's still alive. And he's been exiled, interesting word, exiled to this island of Patmos by the Romans, right? And God is giving John a divine revelation of where all of this is going. Where are we going? See, Moses told us where we were. God tells John where we're going, and he writes it down. It's the last book in your Bible. It's super interesting. It's like one united story. It's the book of Revelation. Here's what John said he saw. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood 
the tree of life. It's back. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The healing of the nations. There, there is this time coming where this tree of life will again bring harmony and peace and shalom between people and countries. No longer, John says, will there be any curse. You know, at the end of the story in Genesis 3, right, the beginning of our rebellion, the curse that befalls us. John goes, that, that's not here anymore. In the beginning, God had proclaimed to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistle for you, and you will eat the plants of the fields. But suddenly, it's gone. It doesn't work that way anymore. The nations are getting along. Humans are getting along with one another. And now somehow, again, living in harmony with all of creation. No longer kind of fighting just to make it. He goes on, he says, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the, the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever and ever. They will actively again begin participating with God in his kingdom, reigning alongside with him, doing his bidding, working with him, right? Meaningful work to cultivate and create in his kingdom. What God could do, maybe some would argue should do better, he prefers again to do with us. And so what do you have? Where are we going? What is the Bible's final scene? It sounds an awful lot like its opening scene, doesn't it? You have a river and people in harmony with one another, reigning again with God, God present again with man and not distant, and in the middle of it all, the tree of life. There's this second tree. You have this first tree, and then you have where we're going, a second tree. Maybe, it turns out, all of the poets and prophets were wrong. Maybe you can go again. And so if that's the case, and we talked about this a few years ago, if that's the case, what does this make us right now? John, would you get that for me? I owe this to Isaac, who is the ultimate camper. That makes us people on a journey, living somewhere between the trees. This is where we find ourselves. It's a visual I want you to press into your head. We are just sojourners living between two trees. Which gets you thinking about this, right? A couple of observations. One is related to time, kind of interesting. All of the authors of the Bible would say this. Heck, God says it about himself. When Moses asked God what his name was, remember what God said? I am. What does that mean? That means that before there was this tree... I always was. I just have always been. And then after this tree, there's this concept of I always was, I am, and I always will be. I am the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. Jesus agrees. In, in fact, remember Jesus' controversial line when, when they asked, is, does he think he's greater than our father Abraham? Abraham, Jesus, Jesus looks at him and goes, before your, your father Abraham was, I am. 
God is timeless. He exists outside of time, right? Forever and ever and ever. So what does that mean about this? That means that where we dwell is like a blip in all of time, in all of history. There exists for just a short moment in the spectrum of eternity, for just a short moment, there appears something that happens between these two trees. You are privileged to be part of that day. Something that just happens right in between them. It's a, it's a twitch, it's a blip, it's a hiccup. And here's my guess. My guess is that time as we know it, and, and this is super interesting, actually, if you want to do the science on this, Einstein and his theory, theory of relativity would get into it a little bit. Time is like this invention, in a sense, that God has, has given us in this realm, in this short period. In the beginning, the scripture says in Genesis, God created the sun of the day to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. John, though, says that in the kingdom to come, in the new creation, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So in the new Jerusalem, you're not going to have to go to the temple to see God. There will be no need for it. God will be with his people, all right? He'll dwell with them. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. All of the ways we keep track of time, right? Days, nights, lunar calendars, Earth's rotation around the sun, they all go away in the home to come. There will be no night, which for people with seasonal affective disorder like me is already like, yeah, that's pretty fun. And so time, kind of in between the trees, it, it only exists here. Einstein postulated that if you could go fast enough, all of time would just go into one blip. It's an invention for now. Maybe for us, why? Maybe for us to be able to keep track, to, to sense, in a sense, the brevity of our journey. You get to my age, it's like, I don't even know why I put the Christmas tree away anymore, right? I'm like, I'm taking it out every other five minutes. It's like the kids in the car asking joyfully, how long do we get there? And God gives us a sense of time so that we know and understand that the answer is not long. Not really very long at all. And if we know the answer is not long, if we knew it and we understand where it is we're going, or at least we got a sense of the joy set before us, maybe, just maybe, we could endure the journey. Maybe we could do more than endure it. Maybe we could enjoy it. Because it's not going to last. And it won't be all that long. Maybe that's why when someone gets a really bad diagnosis, you know, when they, when they understand that time suddenly becomes limited, that this is going to be their last Christmas, you enjoy Christmas a lot more, don't you? I mean, we write country songs like Live Like You Were Dying to talk about these things. To say, maybe if we understood the concept of time and where we are in the spectrum of all eternity to the left and to the right of us, right? Maybe if we got a glimpse of that, if we could wake up, we would understand that time is short. What should we do now with the short amount of time we have? We might begin to make every single moment count, not worry about stupid things. Make relationships right, not care so much about accumulating things, trophies, and triumphs. 
Maybe we wouldn't let ourselves imagine in Mendham, New Jersey, if you could just stop being so stupidly busy. Maybe we could live like we're dying if we understood how little time there is between these trees. So if I'm understanding it, right, where, where we're going and, and trusting our good father that he's taking us there, if we understand where we're going, it might impact how we live between the trees. Then let me give you some more insight, some thoughts as I reflected on this week. Because where you're going is not just an amorphous garden where there are no clothes. And listen, if it makes you nervous, fear not, there will be heavenly bodies. Uh, no lust, no jealousy, no wrinkles. But it's much more tangible than that. Remember when God made all, all of this, he declared that it was all, when he first started before sin enters the world, he looks at what he created and he goes, this is not just good, this is also very good. And, and sin screws it all up. I mean, our desire to be our own gods messes it all up, right? But it should be of no surprise to us then what God called good and very good, he's not done with yet. God is not done with what he called good. Again, back to John, he goes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He's going to dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Friends, do you know where you're going? A new heaven and a, a, a new earth, which I, I believe means a new Mendham and a new Chester, a new Long Valley and a new Randolph. It's not just some amorphous garden someplace. In other words, you're not going to be, please, you're not going to be playing a harp and floating on a cloud for eternity. If you thought that, if you thought that's where you're going, no wonder you live the way you live in between the trees. Who wants that? I don't like harp music. I don't want to listen to it forever. You see, the heavens and the earth that we love and that we study and that we ponder, they're all going to be remade and renewed and restored. What's it going to be like in the new Mendham and the new Chester? Do you want to know? John saw it. Here's what he said. He goes, you know, he's going to wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things. I love that. The old order of things has passed away but not the things. What God made was good, and he's going to make it that way again, just without all of the brokenness that we've brought into it. John goes on, he goes, he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said, I want you to write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. All things new, restored, renewed. If you would put your trust in Christ, like, like the good, good father, if you would put your trust in Christ, the forgiveness of God, which is the way home, will take you to this restored place. I mean, look for, I, this means the potential exists that you and I will be hanging out, if you'd like, in Mendham and Chester for all of eternity, pondering the things of God. I think sometimes we think, we get so many crazy ideas about what's going to happen after we die. I think sometimes we think, well, once I die, I'll know everything there is to know about God. That's not true. You know why? What would that make you? God. So I think there's a good chance all of us are going to be hanging around in Menem and Chester still wondering and pondering about them, still celebrating them. 
John goes, you got to write this down because people are going to need to trust and believe that it's true. It's going to impact their journey, their life as sojourners. Because if they don't understand it, they might try to build houses here and not tents. How they live, how, how, how they endure and enjoy, it'll all change if they trust and believe where I'm taking them is good, that it's worth it. Here's what Jesus said. Some of the disciples started to, to realize they were giving up a lot of things following this crazy rabbi, right? And now rumors, Jesus is telling him he's going to die. And so here's what Jesus said to them. Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tri tribes of Israel. There it is again. You're going to partner with me. You're going to reign with me in the kingdom of God to come. You're going to have good work. And everybody who's left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. In other words, anybody who lives between the trees that doesn't try to build estates here and try to make this their home, that this is all there is, focus everything here. Anybody who lives like a sojourner with a tent that they can just roll up and put on their back, right? Who follows my commands, who decides to love one another as I have loved you, to do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. It will cost you here, but you won't lose anything. I promise you, you'll get a hundredfold back. But for now, we, we, we travel and we drive and we sojourn and we live in tents. We don't put down deep roots here. We don't build mansions here and identities here and purposes here. Why? Well, Peter said, for, for he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration. Here is, you just see the theme everywhere in scripture. The final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Jesus remains in heaven until the time is right, but the kingdom of God for all of you that believe is not a tomorrow thing. We don't live like, like over there, like life after death is over there. We live as believers as if life after death has begun right now. Jesus never talked about eternal life as something that we wait for. He talked about it as something that we experience today. By faith, it's birthed into us. A new spirit, an eternal spirit is born. And so all of the things that can be true over there can be experienced in part in here. Love and harmony and shalom and meaningful labor, partnership with God. It all begins today. It, it, it impacts how we live. This is why there's all these stories and these parables about shrewd managers and stewards and those that can be trusted with a little can later be trusted with a lot. Because the way we live in this world impacts, because we live eternally now, impacts what happens over there. Life eternal has begun for all those who believe. Now this, this is where it gets a little tricky because I think a lot of us in the Christian church, we think that eternal life is something that's going to happen over there. What happens here between the trees, well, it doesn't really matter that much. We just got to believe, and then we'll go to heaven. Dallas Willard said it. The, the average Christian thinks that you die, and you go through like a spiritual car wash. Doesn't matter what you did and how you lived, as long as you prayed the prayer, you come out the other side, and we're all clean and equal. That's not what Jesus seemed to profess. Eternal life begins now. How we live between the trees matters now and into eternity. Paul was trying to help the church in Corinth understand this. 
he wrote to them about how they lived their lives between the trees and the relationship to the life eternal. Listen to this. It is so, I mean, it's, so, it's such a wonderful scripture. It's a little bit, I, I, listen, here's what he said to me. He goes, look, if anybody builds on this foundation of Jesus using gold, silver, costly stones, those would be good things, right? Or wood, hay, or straw. Their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, this day of the Lord, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what's been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only is one escaping through the flames. It's this imagery, right, of us passing through this, like, tunnel of fire, this refining fire, where all of the stuff that didn't matter is burned away. All of the stuff that we invested our lives in that had no eternal good, it's all burned away. And some of us are going to come out of the side of that tunnel, and there is going to be for us great reward. All of the things that we built up into that kingdom are there waiting for us. Others of us will walk out of that that tunnel of fire, and we'll be saved because we're saved by faith. There just won't be all that much over there. And I think we might smell a little smoky. How we live, how we steward our lives now matters for the work that God is going to entrust you with later. Some of you are going to be managing cities. Some of us cleaning their pools. And so we live in tents here. We don't build houses between the trees. You don't build your mansion here. Jesus is coming to take you to his father's. This is temporary. We endure and we enjoy because we know the joy that lies before us. Here's what John saw. Here's the list of things. Do we have that, Maggie? The list of things that, that were, were not going to be in the kingdom? No more sea, which is a real bummer because I love the beach. But I think what the scriptures are indicating is it's the sea. I think what John was saying is it's the sea that separates peoples. There'll be no more, there'll be no more of the, this vast sea that separates one from another. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more weeping, no more pain, no more curse. We talked about that. And no more night. That's where you're going. Don't get left here. Don't you, you actually see if you do, it's really because of your own choice. You, you built a house here. You really just want to stay. You've been invited. I've come to be the way, the truth, and the life. To all that received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. But here, don't stay here. Don't build your house here. Don't continue to try to be your own God. God is only going to invite you. He's not going to uproot you. And what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Well... At the center of the kingdom to come, at the renewal of all things, sits that same tree that sat at the center of all creation, the tree of life. God said that if you ate of the tree, you would live. We would have good and meaningful and eternal life, but we chose otherwise, and the tree was seemingly lost. But Isaiah, this great prophet of Israel, foretold of a day that would come when a shoot will begin to rise up from the stump of Jesse. David's father, King David's father. This dead stump, suddenly this little growth would come out of it. 
And from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Don't you understand that born that night 2,000 years ago in a manger, a little sapling began to grow up into the ultimate tree of life bearing fruit for you and me and all the nations of the earth. The tree of life, once cut off from all people, has been rebirthed and replanted, once again, providing life for all who would eat. Well, Jesus would say, of his flesh and of his blood. Now, don't miss the parallels, right? The writers of the scripture over and over would later say that Jesus would die too on a tree. The cross in some very real sense dying on a tree of death because we chose at one point to eat from it and die ourselves but jesus comes to take our place our death and replant for us the tree of life the seeds of which are available to plant in your heart this christmas and so this christmas my friends may you know that home is not a place it is a person a very certain person May you sense that he is the way, the way of forgiveness, and it is offered to you. You're invited home. He won't take you kicking and screaming. May you this Christmas offer that same forgiveness to those that you've kept far off and away. And may you know for sure where it is that you can go. You'll always be able to build your own houses on some pretty shaky ground. They won't last. The scriptures say that ultimately, if what you want is to forever be the God of, of your own, you will get what you want. You will live apart from God forever. God will not force you to come home. But your home where you've been invited to go is so, so good, so much better than what you're experiencing here. And my prayer for you this Christmas is that when you look at the tree in your house, at the center of your house, you might see the tree at the center of life. May you sense its beauty and wonder and joy. May you trust the driver who promised you that it's going to be so good. And in the meantime, may you endure and enjoy these very brief moments of life between those two trees. Let's stand and close in song.
And so this is it. I won't see you all till uh, either the night before Christmas Eve or Christmas Eve. Um, I want to pray a prayer of blessing over each of you. Won't see you the Sunday after Christmas because we will uh, we'll, uh, we'll be home resting with all of you and enjoying our families. But we'll be back here on New Year's Day to start with that very special service. I want to encourage you to be here. But let me pray for you. Father, we acknowledge that we have, we have for so long been a people who have tried so hard to make a home in this place, this place where the curse is alive and well. It's not easy to live here, and we've, we've done our best, Father. We acknowledge that we've been invited home. We live in this world between two trees, these two trees of life. But 2,000 years ago, this little sapling came onto the scene in a manger in Bethlehem grow in stature and strength, and we've been invited to taste of the fruit of the tree of life. I pray for every single person here, Lord God, the truth of the invitation would ring at deeper levels than ever, and I pray for each and every single person here that they would find their way home. I ask it in the great, precious, holy name of Jesus the Deliverer, and everybody at Mendham said, See you all Christmas Eve. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. We can't wait to celebrate Christmas with you next weekend.